Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Phyllis Wong is a native of the San Francisco Bay Area and would follow her father's sage advice of listen, talk little, listen, in her roles as a historian, educator, including as a writing instructor and director of online learning, and 30-year member of the university-level academic world, including as First Lady at Northern Michigan University, 2004 to 2012 and San Francisco State University, 2012-19. through 19. Among her favorite First Lady accomplishments is co-founding a one-book, one-community, county-wide reading program at NMU. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Evelyn, and it's nice to see you all. And Phyllis, nice to see you. Nice to have you with us. Nice to be Phyllis, here. In a few moments, is going to be talking to us about, and I got to say, Phyllis, what a beautiful cover. Cover. You know, uh, yes. I, I mean, I know you can't judge a book by a cover, but really, you can't read all books. You need something to go by. This cover is gorgeous. It's got, it's just beautiful. And um, yeah, with the corset in the background and the light, the pink that was used, I think, mostly in this lingerie and just a real smart, clever cover. So um, she'll be talking to us just a moment. But I always like to turn us over to Victor, and he gives us some things that we need to know about. So take it away, Victor Volkman, the sponsor of um, these book talks. For those of you who don't know, the library pays for half, and UPA, UPA pays for half. And our speakers uh, get a little stipend for talking to us. And we're real lucky because Victor's found some leads for grant money that might cover up some of the costs which I've been working on, Victor. I haven't told you that, but I am working oh, on that. Great. I was afraid to ask because I know you're so busy. Yeah. Yeah. But I have not forgotten, Victor, because, you know, nothing excites me more than free money. <laughs> uh, on that happy note, I'll take it away. You who don't know me, I'm the current president of UPA, or UPA as you prefer. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about our spring conference, which is happening in Marquette, on Saturday, June 10th, 2023. And it's absolutely free for anyone who's a UPA member, or if you're just a um, member of the general public, you're a writer, you're interested in writing, you can come to, uh, you can you can come for, for $40, it includes the whole day. We have an amazing keynote speaker who's gonna sing a song about Bigfoot. Yes, it's Marty Ackett's, the poet laureate <laughs> of the UP. So uh, we'll be, starting off with a rousing uh, keynote speech. And so we have uh, breakout sessions for uh, all writers, wherever you are in the writing journey. I'll give you some examples here. Uh, Terry Martin, who's on here tonight, she's gonna talk about uh, how to use humor in your writing, no matter what type of writing you're doing. A little humor can always help. We have Tyler Tischler, the former president of UPA, who's gonna be talking about self-publishing for those of you who've written something and you just want to take it on yourself. We'll have Brandy Thomas will be with us. She has narrated all of the audio books for the UP Reader. She's a trained audio and video engineer and she will be preparing this recording for uh, the archives. It will be on YouTube forever. She has an amazing, talented person. We'll have Carrie Pearson. We'll be talking about how to work with an illustrator if you're uh, putting together a children's book. We have Laura Smith from Calumet, who's a professional book cover designer. She'll be passing on all of her secrets on what makes a great book cover. And we have an exciting uh, panel of uh, three booksellers from around the UP. They're gonna talk about how authors can be more effective in, in working with bookstores. Mm -hmm. So once again, if you're interested, head on over to our website, uppaa.org. And the first thing that shows up on the screen will be information about the conference. You can click online, register online, pay with your credit card. If you don't wanna pay online, you can mail us a check. Uh, it's a once in a year chance to experience uh, all of the professionals, writers and authors around the UP. We may have as many as a hundred people and includes a free hot lunch, so. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than this, folks. All right, thanks, Evelyn. Back to you. Well, thank you, Victor. That sounds like a really nice day. 
Um, you know, of course I'm partial because I know Terry and I've read one of her books. I can't wait to read the others. And, and her, you know, we, we talked about the home wind, uh, was that last month, right, Terry? You're correct. Yes. And it is a great book. You do use humor really well. So that, that should be an interesting segment. Carrie Pearson wrote, um, many books, but one is, you know, very beautiful. And we, um, I applied for some grant money and we here in Crystal Falls bought um, that book she wrote about trees. Um, we bought a copy for every, I think it was first and second grader at Forest Park. So that was really neat. And she came to talk to the kids about her book, very professional lady. And of course, Tyler Tischler, his work is amazing. If anybody's listening out there and you have not read his superior, what is it called the Superior Trilogy, Victor? Yeah, the Marquette Trilogy. Oh my gosh. It's actually six books long. So it's a really big trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't, I mean, you, my mom bought me, met Tyler at a craft show, bought the, that first book. And I mean, you just can't put it down. It's, it's really stellar work, a wonderful author. So sounds like a great day, Victor. I think you, hopefully you'll have a good turnout. And Phyllis, I don't know about the rest of you. Did how many of you, if you read the book, did you like it? Okay. I mean, I loved it. I thought it had really, I never knew about this Ishpeming lingerie. And it, I was shocked to find out how many people don't know about it. And, and I was surprised about the few people who did know about it. I mentioned it to my father and it was so funny. He's like, yes, I know about it. They were advertising for machinists back in the sixties. And he and a friend went up there and then realized they were looking for women machinists and it was for lingerie. So, I mean, even he had a story to talk about. So, <laughs> so neat to see that, you know, you've got this, this, you know, I think more and more, you know, with the Me Too movement and everything, more and more women's stories are being told. We're finding more and more out about women and what women have done and how they've contributed and I mean, your book is really, it's a big part of that canon. So just getting the word out to people is, is amazing. So I can't wait to hear more. Take it away, Phyllis. Tell us all about We Kept Our Towns Going, the Gosser Girls of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you, Evelyn, Victor, and Uppa. I now know how to pronounce the acronym for it. I've been listening <laughs> oh, for hosting tonight's book discussion. I would also like to thank the staff and faculty from Northern Michigan University and also San Francisco State University for their support over the past decade. I was lucky, truly lucky, to meet so many Gossard workers, almost 100 women and some men, and to listen to their stories, to hear how Gossard girls impacted their towns economically politically, socially, at a time when expectations of what single and married women could and should do was quite different then from what it is today in 2023. Most assuredly, their stories illuminate a poignant time in local, state, and I would also say <clears throat> national history. This is, this is a local story, but this is also a national story. On behalf of the Gossard Girls, I say thanks to those who are here tonight to participate in tonight's book discussion. The first thing I'd like to do, let me close this window up here, is to draw your attention to the image that you see on, on the screen. It's an image that is emblematic. I use it because it's emblematic of many of my experiences in Michigan's Upper Peninsula where I lived for over eight years. If you look closely and please use your imagination, you can see a crude outline made of water of the Upper Peninsula in this ancient rock formation on Presque Isle. During one of my trips to Marquette for work on my manuscript, I met a stranger while walking on black rocks at sunrise in the dark before the sun even rose. We chatted about our mutual interest in the area's inspiring beauty, and she filled me in on what's going on in Marquette. At one point, she drew my attention 
to what you see in the middle of this image here, the water image depicting the Upper Peninsula. We didn't exchange names, yet I will never ever forget our sunrise conversation. All righty, let's see here. Um, hmm. All righty, so let's try this. I'm trying to advance it, Victor. Um, try the uh, page down or uh, right arrow. Okay, I'll try the page down. Now I'll try the right arrow. Oh. Uh, make sure it's the active application, so you might need to click on PowerPoint again. Oh, there Maybe. we go. There's the second one. It was sleeping for a while. <clears throat> so the first thing I'd like to talk about tonight, which the book addresses because it addresses through the voices of the women, is the economic impact. I cannot emphasize it enough, and I actually will spend a, a bit of time talking about um, their economic impact. What you see is a 1925 um, got a photo, group photo of uh, the women and some men, the Gazard workers. It was a, um, a summer picnic. You can get a sense of the economic impact just by looking at the sheer numbers, okay? The sheer numbers. Two years after this photo was taken in 1927, there were four, over 400 wage and salary workers. And you can see there what the monthly payroll was. And if you inflated it for today's numbers, what it would mean in Ishpeming today, it's, it's rather large. But just imagine for a moment, each one of you, that you are one of the workers. And there you are at the picnic, all these people. And think about what you did with your wages, how you helped your area and your family. One woman that I spoke to remembered and said, I went to work because I wanted to help my family. Lila said, I brought groceries with my money. And Shirley had another kind of story. She said, my father, a miner died in an accident. So my mom to clean houses. That wasn't enough. So she had to also work. Where did these workers come from? Oh, lots of places. Ishpeming, Nagani, Michigami, Ishpeming Township, Nagani Township. And then out further, those of you who know where Rock is, the small community of Rock. Even Marquette, people would come from Marquette. And then when the Glynn plant opened in 1947, then workers came from Palmer and Gwynn and Little Lake and New Swansea, all those unincorporated places. Um, one of the women who worked, ended up working in the Ishpeming factory said to me, she worked in the 1940s during World War II. She says, quote, it was the Listen, only we're not place- We might do things that did have a negative outcome or oh. our behavior. All right, are we okay now to continue? Okay, all righty. She said it was the only place in town where you made good money. I lived in town where stores were anchored in one next to the other. If you've ever been to Ishpeming lately, it looks quite different from what it looked, at, looked like in the 40s. Um, Elizabeth, um, <clears throat> Elizabeth said it was a heyday in Ishpeming. It, it was quite well known in its day. There were loads of grocery stores, including A.W. Meyer stores, Leflores, Koski, many grocery stores, and many, she said, were ethnic grocery stores. Back then, she said, people kind of tended to lean toward their ethnic background. That's the way it was back then. So in lunchtime, these workers that you see here would have had an hour off and they would have gone down. They might've had lunch downtown, spent their money with that. They might've done some shopping. They might've walked for exercise. Um, they also might've gone into a clothing store and bought some things. All right, let's see if I can advance this again. There we go, all righty. This is an especially important photo for me to, to share with you. It's not in the book. There are a lot of photos that are not in the book, um, but what it is is it gives you a sense of the undergarment factory in Ishpeming. This is Ishpeming's, it was a four-story building and two of the floors were devoted entirely to um, assembling of undergarments. Um, Corsets, girdles, bras, uh, one-piece foundations. 
you can have a sense of the size of the building there as you look at it. And you can see that workers are lined up in rows. But when you look there, they're lined up, they're in what we call, what they used to call departments. So maybe there might be 20 women, um, 10 on each side facing each other that were in seaming. Maybe next to them might've been the narrow binding, the medium binding. So you get the idea because this was an assembly line process, then they would be lined up so that the garments, the assembly of the garments would move along from one piece rate worker, say in seaming, to the next one who might be in um, uh, wide binding. <clears throat> I know a lot, this book tells a lot about, chapter two is really good about explaining how the factory worked. I learned about it. I was a good student of Elaine Peterson who worked in at least 10 different areas. Um, her story is quite fascinating. She said she worked side by side with, woman, with women. She supervised women and she worked side by side with men. She was one of the rare women who had um, sort of the, uh, worked in just so many areas of the factory. She said at the end, I learned the inner workings of the undergarment assembly environment, a place where one had to be there to comprehend and value the complexity and intricacies of the undergarment plant. I'd like to take a moment and, and um, toss out the question that there are things that you don't see in this picture. I think this is a posed picture. What don't you see? What don't we know? Well, what we don't see and we can't hear is that it was a very noisy environment. Machines were going loud, strong. It was very warm there because the machine's motors were going for about five, six hours a day with hundreds of machines going. Uh, we also don't see in here the oil drums where women um, would go in the mid-morning to get oil so that they could oil their machines. We also don't see power boxes that were on the walls where a mechanic would turn the, would had control of all of the power to the machines and would turn them on and off as needed, especially they went off during um, lunchtime. We also don't see Again, this is, this is a lovely photo, but we don't see bundles, these canvas bags that the women were given so that they could pull their, their, um, their unassembled garments out and begin to work on them. We also don't see any male workers here. The mechanics were one of the largest um, of, the of the male workers there. There were many, many of them because again, there were many machines and they had to, they had to keep working and keep things going. And the men also sharpened um, scissors. It's not easy to see in this picture, but one of the women told me some of the chairs were different and they were very uncomfortable. And so what some workers would bring cushions to sit on and then it was much easier to work six hours a day. Another worker, Cecilia said to me, Phyllis, this is a competitive environment. The woman sitting next to me, she's trying to make more money than me. Another woman who worked, say, in the 60s, why? Because she wanted to buy furniture for her house. <clears throat> her house, she was a very fast piece, piece rate worker. She said, I held my snippers, and that was her name for scissors in a certain way, and then, I could make way above the rate. And Anita, who worked in the Gwynn factory in 1947 said, I never liked the timers. They made me nervous. And I, if I were gonna come and stand by me, I told them to move far away. So some more images of what peace workers had, you know, what made up their life. <clears throat> Wages, the um, workers were paid once a week on Fridays. And here you have a sense of what the pay stub would look like. This was Anita's pay stub. Um, uh, so this particular time in 1960, she didn't make much money that week. She said to me, I probably wasn't very good in the mood um, that week. So I didn't make much money. Down below are three important images. So I referenced earlier that workers would have received a canvas bag called a bundle and attached to that bundle was a tag. It was a cardboard like uh, tag and on it, as you can see on the left hand side were um, <clears throat> information about the contents of the bundle. 
in this particular image was um, that we have to imagine, and this is a hand-drawn um, tag, compliments of Elaine. Um, to make this garter belt, it was about eight steps. And peace workers could see if I was a seamer, that's, I would look at the bottom, I, and that would be how much I paid, was paid to finish up, uh, say, maybe a dozen or two dozen. And then at the end of the day, the peace worker would snip that off and attach that receipt, I'm going to call it a receipt, to something called a sticky, which really had another place where they put their information, their name, their um, employee number, and they glued it onto that piece of paper, and then they clocked out at the end of the day. And the office people would then tabulate the earnings, because sometimes we are all human. Sometimes we make mistakes when we add up things. So um, the office people will would double check that. And then on the right-hand side, there's a picture of a Singer oil can that I referenced earlier and a pair of scissors. Every Gazer worker had to have a pair of scissors. They could either buy one from the company or they would go out and purchase one themselves. And peace workers, they were the largest number of workers at the factory in Ishpeming and also in Gwyn, once a week, they would need to have their scissors sharpened. And then in the upper right is a picture of a, a dues card in 1949 after the strike, everyone was a member of the union. And down below is just an example of one of many sewing machines that the Gossard, um girls worked on. <clears throat> Let's see here. Uh, Most of my talk today is about the women, but I would like to mention the men because without the men cutting the material, fixing the machines, um, it'd be pretty hard for the women to be as, as successful as they were. One man, Bob Seidel was his name, was a sewing machine mechanic. He was experienced in repairing different sewing machine models. But he said to me one day when I interviewed him, he said, Phyllis, I always said that to work at the Gazard, you had to be a psychiatrist. You had to listen. Sometimes listening wasn't easy, but some many times it was. <clears throat> here's, an, here's another slide which gives you, again, a sense of the economic assets the, that the women were um, broken down in um, two different periods. And I got the information from the um, mining journal and you get again it gives you a sense of the awesomeness of the impact that the women had in a place where even in the 40s and the 50s it was the second largest business in Ishpeming. imagine that you are a member of a business that is the second largest you're a woman you actually have status in the community because of what you are doing. Your downtown is thriving in Ishpeming as well as in Gwyn. I think the last image that I want to show you that has to do again support um, what the women said is that you know they were economic assets. They kept the town going. In fact, the name of the book, the title of the book, we kept our towns going is an actual quote from a couple of the women I interviewed. So in 1962, as you can see, Republican gubernatorial candidate George Romney campaigns in Ishpeming at the factory. This was in the um, Mar uh, Milwaukee Journal. I received a copy of this from um, Elaine Peterson, the woman who had walked every, had every step that she walked in, in that uh, factory. She recalled the day that Mr. Romney campaigned. Um, and Elaine said to me, she giggled when she said that. She said, imagine that he came to a factory where we're unionized. Imagine that he came to a factory where a lot of people were um, Democrats. And here he is a Republican. But she knew, she knew, Elaine knew how powerful, how powerful and what a draw it was for those in politics to come and to see for themselves what the second largest factory in Ishpeming and the largest women's business factory in the UP, I might add, the impact of such a place. Uh, 
Okay. <clears throat> we now talk about um, uh, the women making a political, what I call a political impact. Um, beginning in 1941, uh, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union came up to the Upper Peninsula. They were interested in unionizing small factories. Oddly, they had no idea in 1941 that there were over 500 workers in Gossard Undergarment Factory in Ishpeming. So you can imagine the attention that um, the union people bestowed on the women in this particular factory. As you can see there, it was a long time until it became a union shop. And there probably are a lot, there are a lot of reasons for that. And the book, chapter four in the book, does a pretty good job of trying to get at what some of the issues were. It was um, not easy for me to find people who knew a lot about this particular time in history and some actually who really, they weren't pro-union. So it wasn't easy to talk about for them to talk about. But as you can see there, it took eight years and it required buckets of courage, patience, determination to overcome fear, intimidation, power struggles, and yes, money. Um, you may have read in you might have read in that particular chapter about um, how there was a, a time in which a period in which uh, some of the uh, those who were pro-union were a little bit annoyed because they felt that someone was getting more money than someone else. <clears throat> but in 1948, um, workers um, had another um, campaign and they voted yes that they wanted a union shop. They couldn't, um, the company could not um, agree with what the union people were asking for. And so that's when a strike was called in April, a four month strike. So imagine in 1949, there's also a slowdown in the mines of many men, miners are out of work. And we all know that mines and logging are the two main industries in the Upper Peninsula in this particular time period. And yet in, in April, lots of them were out of work. So what happens? Well, the ILGWU comes in and spends about $5,000 a week to help support those workers who were willing to picket. What you see in front of you are some women who had a fun time because fun, it was, this was serious business, but they also knew how to have fun, like wearing undergarments on the outside and, and, and having games and singing songs and doing what they needed to do to support each other so the collective of them could be strong for four months and then as as what happened, they did get a union shop. <clears throat> um, it was interesting. I did get some, some of the women did talk about what it was like to be a, um, an organizer, to, be, to participate, to be a picketer. Um, one woman who was an immigrant from Belgium and her English skills, even when I interviewed her in well, 2008, it wasn't easy to understand her. But she knew, she said to me then when she talked to me, my husband was laid off. He was a minor. If I agreed to picket, my husband and I could eat free meals above Woody's bar. So if you agreed to picket two hours a day, then you had support. So you could have meals. If you couldn't, if you didn't have enough money to pay the electrical bill, if you didn't have enough money to buy groceries, you could go before a grievance committee where Elaine Peterson was one of those eight people and make your case, and then you would have help. Imagine what that meant to women who, some of them initially were not pro-union, but as Denise said, we needed to, we will pick it. You did what you had to do. One woman, Rose Collick, she is in the book. There's a lovely biography of her in the, in the book. 
was not working at the Gazard. She was a new mother, but she lived across the street from the building. So during the strike, she gave the women permission to hang out in her garage so they could watch who was going in and out of the building. Rose believed in unions. She wasn't a worker there then, but she believed in them. <clears throat> so to the company's credit, um, they believed in the importance of, a social, of social activities, of getting to know one another. They endorsed many and they um, sponsored a number of activities even, even in the factory itself and outside. What you see there is another photo of a summer picnic. There were many summer picnics. Probably they were discontinued in the, about the mid fifties after the union came in. But just take a look at all of the workers that you see in front of you there. In the bottom left of the screen there, you can see a man with a white hat. That's Chef Maloney. There was a, um, in the basement, a cafeteria where women were fed free, free meals five days a week. And then again, after the union came in, that, that was discontinued. But for many of the women, again, many women who had to work, not having to pay for a lunch every day in the 40s was a huge saving. It bolstered bolstered their income. They made more money. They were deeply appreciative of it. In addition to picnics, which were actually day-long affairs, there's a in, in the book, there's a, a discussion about and a description of what happened during a regular picnic. Three meals a day, there was dancing, there was games. One year, there was a Miss Gossard, um competition. So the company really understood the importance of bringing workers together to nurture relationships and to be uh, obviously to also to be um, want to keep coming back to the Gazard. It worked. They were bowling. They, the um, the Gazard company sponsored bowling teams. Margie Kettle talked with great pride and she brought me a photo of herself in her bowling uniform that was um, uh, bought by the Gazard. They went down to the Milwaukee area and played in the nationals, well, the state championships and had a great time. So there, the company was um, quite um, generous um, by our standards, okay, quite generous. Okay, so I've talked a bit about Margie Ketela. She is an amazing, amazing woman. And you can see some of the things about her. I'd like to read, um, read to you um, uh, parts of her story that are not in the biography. Her, she was a great storyteller and she was very forthright with um, talking about what she did and what it meant to her. So I just like to read to you a portion. She was <clears throat> one of the um, founders of a special group called the Golden Age Club. And this started, this club began when the Gossard factory closed in 1976, permanently closed in 1976. The Golden Age Club was a social club and open to all former Gossard employees. The structure and division of labor remained unchanged for almost 30 years. That's how long they kept on meeting. Rose was the president and Evelyn held the position <laughs> of treasurer and secretary. Rose assumed the bulk of the work for the monthly meeting. She'd select the meeting sites, write monthly agendas, run the meetings, and she ordered food and made coffee, coffee for the membership, which in the beginning was over 100 people, okay? When it closed, it was probably about 10 in 2008, I think. Every meeting began with a flag salute and followed by singing of God Bless America. Club members ate lunch, usually pasties, from Ralph's Italian Deli on Highway 41 or Tino's, a family restaurant in Nagani. Of course, a portion of club meetings were spent on friendly games of bingo, where winners received a modest prize, 25 cents. Rose willingly assumed the position, but she wanted to give it up. She was tired of doing it. 
<clears throat> As a leader, she often had to listen to what members thought she ought to be doing. Rose said to me, they thought sometimes I wasn't doing things right. For example, one woman didn't want her to have members say the Pledge of Allegiance and sing a song. How Rose handled this exchange, Rose said, well, Rose told her, well, if I want to sing that song, I'll sing that song. At another time, another thing that the club members did was each year they donated money to the Salvation Army in Ishpeming. Well, one club member was disturbed and cautioned her not to send any more checks, write any more checks for the Salvation Army because she said that the, the members there, the people who worked at the Salvation Army um, spent it on themselves, that they would take a trip. Well, Rose didn't have any way of verifying the authenticity of the story, but as a good leader and as someone who had to think on the spot, she came up with a really good idea. What she said was that in, in lieu of a check, she would give the army a gift certificate from the grocery store. Then they could buy groceries and fill up the baskets for those, who, for those people who needed. Club members agreed with her, um, her idea. And so that's what they did. And then one final thing that Rose was in charge of was every year, she arranged, arranged for an all expense paid Christmas party at a local party. Now, mind you, these are women that are retired, right? They're on a fixed income. How did she do it? Rose, take charge woman. That's all I can say about her and a principled person at that. So what she did was she would write to the international in Chicago, the offices there and request to have something sent for a party. Did she know about other people doing this? No, this was simply Rose's idea. Why would she want to do that? Well, I asked her about that. And she said, well, you know, she reasoned that the Gaza girls paid union dues when they were working. And so it seemed reasonable to ask for union support. Whether the union thought in similar terms is not known. Nonetheless, Rose said they didn't mind they offered it to us. So I took it. Rose was grateful. Quote, they were nice to us. She was a pretty amazing woman, the eldest of 11 siblings who sort of took charge her whole life. The other person I'd like to tell you a little bit about is Pauline Toivonen. There's just a small bit about her in, in the book. There was many things I had to keep out of the book um, because you know, that's the way it is when you engage a, a press. You know, you can have so much, so much that you can write. But well, I guess what I want you to think about is this is a woman who was self-described, she was shy. She was just very shy. But in 1946, she managed to get a job at the Gossard. It was very intimidating, she said, and the stairs were creepy. The stairs at the Gazard are extra wide. You have to imagine 10 women coming down the stairs together, these long stairs going up in the morning and coming down. They are worn looking stairs. <clears throat> but Pauline said that, you know, even though she was shy, I slowly got to meet those sitting around me. And she said, but I held back just a little. She told me about the time that she wasn't paying attention and she caught a, a needle got stuck in her fingers three ways, three times. And there in those days, um, you, didn't, you didn't go to the, um, uh, the hospital emergency room. You sat in your chair and someone tried to pull the needles out. And if they got them out, they bandaged you up and you went right back to the... Um, your assembly line, and you continued working. She said, I almost fainted when I saw all of those broken needles in my finger. Now, this shy person in 1949 agreed to be one of the picketers. I was intrigued by this because she talked frequently about being a shy person. So um, <clears throat> Pauline agreed to join the picketers. She said, in three years, I got to know some of the girls. 
even more. I was less timid. She was only 20 at the time, actually. And she said, I was, I was only 20, I was young. And I got caught up with the strike, like other women did too, the young ones especially, you know, um, they would go along and just do things. The third issue, though, was far more important in 1949. It was an economics, a reason why she agreed to be a picketer. She had recently married, and, was, and she and her husband were living with her family. But, but, her but her husband, Marvin, and her stepfather were laid off from the mines. They were not working, and her mother was not working. Pauline would have to help out. And she did. So she was a picketer, two hours a day. When I asked her, I said, well, what did you have to do? And she said, well, you had to be out there in force, just like you see on TV, to be a little noisy. Try to state your point and sing songs. But Pauline, who was very shy, said she witnessed a lot of unpleasantness and combativeness and name calling and hurt feelings between friends. She said, these were complicated and stressful times, but we managed, we made it. The other thing I wanted, a fun thing I wanted to tell you about Pauline was um, her about her Aunt Bone. In 1920, um, actually, Pauline's mother worked at the Goddard factory just a very brief time, but she also her aunt worked there in 1920. And she, Helen, and two other Goddard workers in the Ishmael plant were asked to travel to Australia to help set up a Gossard factory. Now imagine that in 1920, how do you get from Ishpeming to Australia? Well, she had to take um, a train down to Chicago, hop on another train all the way to the West Coast, into the Bay Area, San Francisco, hop on a steamer, and then find her and the other two people their way to Australia. I don't know how long her aunt stayed there. She did return to the UP. And when she did return, uh, Pauline was thrilled because she brought back some gifts from Australia, including um, a boomerang that um, Pauline has up on um, her wall in memory of her aunt. Her aunt also too was a, a woman who liked to tell fortunes and did tell fortunes in her day, even told the fortune for Pauline, which Pauline says, well, everything she said came out true, including the time when Pauline lost her first child. So working at the Gazard was very, very important to Pauline. She, yes, she learned to be less shy. She also learned that hundreds and hundreds of women turned out to help Ishwamin's economy. They were like her. They spent their paychecks locally. They bought dresses and goldies and pennies and style shop. They ate, they danced. Pauline loved to dance. They would go to the supper club, the Venice, the 41 Steakhouse. Pauline said to me, it was our patronage that kept the businesses going. What do we have here for time? 44, ay, ay, ay. I will go through this quickly. So um, I did, didn't have a chance, but there is in the book, uh, the quilts, there are a lot of quilt stories about um, um, that preserve history. This particular quilt that you see in front of you right now is a very special quilt because it, it memorializes an aunt who had a very, very difficult upbringing and actually had to left home during the depression married and came back with her husband. And the only way they could get back was to ride the rails. They lived in a very modest wooden shed, no running water, um, no heat. It was a, um, uh, a difficult time, but the good news is that Aunt Marie would end up working at the Gwyn factory, making money and um, living a good life. So this particular quilt is important to the two sisters who talked to me about why they could never ever get rid of this quilt, why it is so important to them. And then one woman, she didn't work at the factory, but her aunts and her mom worked on a doll quilt 
They made this from extra remnants. Can you see the detail work in it? And so today, um, this, this um, doll quilt is actually in the museum in Marquette, but it's a tribute to um, the women who used extra material to make fun things and used everything they could. I'd like to end by just giving you an idea of some of the women, some of the people that worked at the Gossard, ordinary people, strong people, resourceful people, wonderful people who kept their towns going. Thank you. Thank you, Phyllis. If there are any questions, I would love to hear some questions or queries. Oh, thank you. This is just fascinating and the work that you did with it. Wonderful. Phyllis, yes. if, maybe if you can stop screen sharing, then we can all see each other better. Okay, yes. sure. All righty. So, uh, all right, Victor, take me through that. Stop to stop screen sharing. Uh, Evelyn? Yes. Where's the stop screen share? Is I think it's, I think on the top, if she presses up on the top, I it think says, where she can. Um, I'll say pause share. Yeah, yeah try that. Share. It says pause. That's not helping you, is it? Oh. Okay. Or on the bottom where it says share screen. Uh, there we go. There, you did it. You did it. Okay. All right, here we go. Okay, that way we can kind of see each other a little bit better. Sure. Uh, Phyllis, um, I was wondering, is the the sh uh, picture you had of the women in the uh, uh, large room making the, the garments, um, were, was this one building or did they have other buildings? Because I'm, I'm assuming they, uh, with that many employees, they had to have a warehouse and all that. Uh, and then you mentioned they had a cafeteria. So what are we talking about in terms of size? Was it in the... No, I'm not that familiar with Ishpeming. So where would the uh, you know, buildings have been at that time? So this was, everything was contained in one building. It was four stories. It originally was um, uh, before it got renovated in 1904. Um, it was a huge department store called the Brasted. So um, it took up an entire block. And um, initially there were just three floors that they added a fourth floor in, in the forties. So when garments were done and ready to be uh, boxed and shipped out, then a truck would come and pick up all of the things and things would get trucked down to um, uh, Chicago area where the warehouses were, but everything was done on site. Um, you know, you'd beginning at the top on the fourth floor, you'd have all of the cutting and cutting out of the materials and things like that. And then the third and second floor were the assembly ones putting things together. The first floor was typically boxing and shipping. And then the basement also was some, um, actually in the basement, there was a huge uh, two-ton machine that, that could collect a hydraulic machine that cut out um, uh, undergarments. So that was also down there, but everything was self-contained in one building. Do we have any other questions out there for Phyllis? I've got one, but I want to hear if anybody else has one first. Uh, I have one. Um, did Go they ahead. have, yeah, this is Sharon. Did they have treadle machines or, or electric? Mm -hmm. That's a good good question. In the beginning, there were some treadle treadle machines, but as um, you know, the uh, technology advanced some, then they didn't use them anymore. But in the beginning, there were, and it's interesting. You should ask about treadle machines because in those days, many many people had treadle machines. So this was an adjustment, moving from a treadle machine at home to industrial machines in the factory that went super fast. Thank you. Yes. When, when did Gazart uh, start? I, I don't recall hearing that. Um, well, I'm not sure uh, how to answer your question. So in Ishpeming, but the company itself began in 1900, 1904. 
And then by 1920, the, the company was just doing super well and needed to expand even more beyond the factories they had in, uh, oh, about six or seven factories they had in the Midwest. And that's when they were enticed to come up to um, Ishpeming. There were factories in Canada, uh, factories in Australia, and also a factory in um, London. And eventually, if you um, read the book, you will learn about in the 30s and 40s, the American company actually became a UK country and it exists today. The company still exists today. Thank you for asking that question. I have a question. Yes. Um, this is Terry. Hi, Terry. I was just wondering, be, being that the Upper Peninsula, especially back then, was pretty remote, I just wondered about distribution of all these goods that they're they're cranking out and how um, how they got them to their destination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So three days a week, a truck brought raw materials. The end of the day, they took back the completed, the assembled materials. So only by truck, not by train. I'm not sure why they never used a train. And all of that was trucked down to the warehouses. So it was this three days a week, whether and they would get materials from the Ishpeming one. And then in the 40s, late 40s, they also had to get materials, finished materials from the Gwyn plant, which was much smaller, but nonetheless, um, they had to pick things up there by truck. So you can imagine that was pretty expensive. And you can think about the winters that the UP has, huh? Yeah. And then no bridge until what, 1955 mm -hmm. or six? Mm -hmm. did, well, did they say, did they ship them like to Wisconsin? Is that, or just? Um, some of the warehouses were in, not Wisconsin. I think they were in Indiana. I'm kind of blanking on the exact locations of them. There was more than one warehouse, but they were set, they were centralized in the Midwest. And that's really where most of the factories, the Gossard factories were located in America, in the Midwest. And it was, they were located there for a very good reason. Well, um, it wasn't the big city, so you didn't have to pay big city prices to workers. So it really made sense to go into smaller communities. And, you know, places like Ishpeming really benefited and Gwyn benefited from them doing that kind of thing. Phyllis. Yes. I'm dying to ask this question because I read <laughs> your book cover to cover. Yeah. And I think what's really great about your book is you, you take us through, you know, the, this whole story of this plant, you know, and, and you're very diplomatic, Phyllis. You know, you tell us about the company and then you tell us about the union. And it's, it's a big part of the book and it's very interesting. And as I'm reading it, you know, um, and I, I was a teacher, so I've been in a union. I also worked in the mines myself when I was going to college. So I, I have this sort of pro-union mindset, but then in the book, you kind of bring this other light to it, how, how the company was very good to these girls and, and it did take eight years to get it unionized because of, so Phyllis, yeah. if you're a Gossard girl, where would you have stood on this issue? Would you have wanted to join the union? Would you have wanted to stick with the company? Where would you, where would you be? Yeah, uh, I, I like your question. You're putting me on the spot. I like that. Yes. <laughs> oh. Based, based on the number of stories that I heard from the women about what it was like when you didn't have a voice, when your, the manager looked you in the eyes and said, you will never earn as much money as a man. Or when he said, if, if you sign a union, a campaign card, I'm gonna, I'm, you're gonna have to leave. So if I'm, going to be intimidated and nobody is sticking up for me I want to find someone who's going to help me stick up for me okay sometimes sometimes models I mean they when they brought in a new 
undergarment on inside, they, they lower the prices. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure people here listening, if you were on the assembly line and you were getting say uh, 25 cents for this one task that you did, and now you have a, the same model, but now they wanna say, all right, we're only gonna give you 20 cents. How do you think you, how do you think, how I, I know how I'd feel. Mm -hmm. I want to be valued. And maybe that's something that, I don't know that the women ever use that word. It's the word that I used. Mm -hmm. When the employer, when your boss values you, then you're not going to be looking outside other places for someone to help, help find you help. Mm -hmm. You value people. And there was a time, and you know, there is this tension between the company making money and workers wanting to make money. But you have to come to some kind of agreement and you have to value the people that work for you. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. And I and I, it it was a neat part of the book for me because you know, you didn't um you didn't spit out any opinion, you know, you just kind of put it all out there and it made me think. And I always like to think when I read a book, you know, I like when the book makes my mind keep going and, and yours did, you know, so thank you for that. I enjoyed that. Um, it, it was kind of interesting. It was not, I thought it would be easy to write about women that I interviewed. Okay. I thought it would be, but actually I don't think it's that easy at all because part of what we often do unassumingly is insert our own thoughts about what they meant. And there's a danger in that, a big danger. So I, I spent literally hours and hours on the interviews, writing them up in their words, and then trying to make sure that the words I used were not my words, but what they were, it were their words. Mm -hmm. It was not easy at all. But I, I take comfort because many of the women I've talked to, including Verna, a woman who is probably 107 years old today, this year, um, they read it carefully and they saw that, you know, their words were valued. What they said was valued. And that's what we want to do. We want to value people if we ask them to tell us stories. Good advice. Is there time for another question? Yes. Okay. Um, following up on uh, Evelyn's question about unionization, I was yes. when you interviewed the women. Was there um, talk about the uh, what what we call the paternalistic company versus uh, unions? And uh, you know, were were you know, were I'm assuming there was probably some kind of split in in the. Uh, in, in the uh, worker workforce, those who wanted to be and stay in the company because they thought that it that was safe, and then the others who wanted to, you know, were more um, brave. I guess you would have to say, and 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 wanted wanted to uh, move ahead and and not rely on the company, but rely upon uh, their own efforts and and through the union to be able to uh, move ahead and, and uh, make uh, better wages. Mm -hmm. Well. <clears throat> It's interesting as I've been listening to you use the word paternalistic. It's not a term that they would have used. Um, so they're oftentimes their reasons for being either for a union or not for the union sometimes were based on um, a husband or a family in which they were members of the union. Now, again, Miners, the unions, um, the mines were unionized. So, and many of these workers would have come from mining families. So they would have, they they would have um, adopted. I not that's not a good word. Adopted is not the right word. But they would have um, followed what was the prevailing opinion in their family. Um, sometimes, what is also interesting is that during the um, eight years when they were trying to um, unionize and, and um, you know, get a union in there, 
they had, this was all done in secrecy, as those of you who are members of the union know, things were done in secrecy. And so they never even told their parents or even their best friends. Um, and when parents did find out, those who talked to me said, well, they didn't care. They were fine with it. Um, I think, again, fundamentally, the problem was that they were not being valued. The you know, the company was changing prices, department heads were showing favoritism and giving one their friends better um, bundles to work on where they would make more money. So um, again, I think it just boiled down to nobody, you know, the company wasn't valuing them and the union stepped up and said, we will, we will. So they made a choice. That's great. Um, was was were all the companies um, in, in the Midwest unionized by the Garment Workers Union? Um, no, not. I don't believe all of them were. The large ones were, for example, example in Logansport and Huntington. Um, those were unionized. Um, I can't speak for. Um, factories that were outside of the United States, for example, in Drummondville or even Toronto, where I don't, I don't, I have no knowledge of that. And nor do I have knowledge of, you know, there were factories in England um, up through the 70s. And I don't have any knowledge of that. But um, I would say the large factories were unionized. Uh, Ishpeming, Ishpeming uh, was probably the second largest one in the Midwest. Gwyn, with only about 150 workers there, was, um, you know, never unionized. Well, actually, it was unionized when everything came down in 1949, but they did not want a union shop. They were very happy with the way things were in Gwyn. I have a very interesting time. After seven o'clock, so we got to kind of wrap it up here. But why did you write this book? <laughs> Why did I write the book? Yeah. Um, okay, sure. Uh, okay. I wrote the book because I felt people needed to know this history. What these people did, what the women did, and some men, is something that is that needed to be told. Um, it's nice because in Ishpeming was kind of this self-contained small city. So really you can get a sense of the power of we kept our towns going. A story like this, I don't see what might could have been as impactful in a Chicago or in New York City, but here you have this self-contained thing. Plus you also have, this, this is, these are rural communities and so they are, they are, are doing what women are doing all over, but nobody knows about it. Are you from Ishpeming or how did you hear the story? How did you get the, 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 mm -hmm. I uh, good question. So I got to know about the women because I was doing a research paper on another of well-known women in, in Marquette. I'm not from the UP. I have a little blood in me because I've lived here, eight lived there eight years. But um, so I, I did a, a joint research paper on Geraldine Gordon DeFont. And some of you are nodding your heads. You may know of her. She was a woman from Chicago who came up uh, to help unionize. And uh, she became politically active in Marquette County as part of the uh, Democratic uh, uh, <clears throat> Party. So in the process of doing a research project on her, I had to interview women who knew her. Right. And I very quickly said, I, I'm going to do this paper, but this is where I want to know more. I want to learn more. I was really, not, I was intrigued and impressed mm -hmm. with what workers did. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing I have to say too, you know, before I was the director here at the library, I was an English teacher for 24 years. Uh -huh. and you, you do beautiful research. You know, like this, this is not easy stuff out there, people like, and you've got, it's so well researched. It's so, you know, it, you don't see this yeah. anymore. You did a good job. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, 
I really wanted to demonstrate that I valued what people did. They told me stories. So how do I honor them? What do I do? I try to put together something that is worthy of yeah. celebrating. And they're the ones who are celebrating. You know, I learned from them. Mm -hmm. What they did was amazing. I didn't make this up. Yeah. yeah. And I think, Victor, it's just we couldn't have picked a better book to kick off year four, could we? It's an amazing uh, piece of uh, sociological study, and it, it could be a textbook for labor relations. There's so many ways this book can be used. Mm -hmm. uh, next week, I'm going to be a guest uh, speaker at um, Clark University, where I live, and I'm going to talk to students in an oral history class, and I'm very, very excited to tell them about um, this wonderful story from the Upper Peninsula. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yes, any good UP press is, is nice. <laughs> and I'll tell you, so thank you everybody for coming on tonight. And Phyllis, I'm going to email you tomorrow because we need to get your physical address so we can send you some money, um, you know, because you did a lot of work here and we're so glad you talked to us tonight. Thank you. I think we all really learned a lot and uh, we'll see you guys next month. Yeah. Thank you very much again to, uh, to um, both of you, Victor and you, Evelyn, and to everybody who attended. I am honored to, for people to come and to hear, hear about these people. Thank yeah. you. It's a real good story. Thank, Thank you. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.